Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 20th, 2017, and this is episode 2048 of the Survival Podcast. It is Friday. That means it's time for the Expert Council Q&A show uh, for July 21st, 2017. This is where we have your questions for our council members. Here are the questions that I have for council members today. I have a question on preventing and treating anemia for Doc Bones. I have a question on kidney damage in relationship to uh, paleo dieting, paleo primal dieting from Gary Collins. What the heck? Do, what the heck does an engineer actually do day to day as an engineer? An interesting question came in for Darby Simpson and Stephen Harris. Darby is nursing some wounds from an injury. Uh, we hope he gets gets back on his feet soon, but he's also trying to catch up on the farm with that. Uh, so I don't have Darby's response to that yet, but I do have Stephen Harris's. We'll play that. We'll have a discussion with Nick Ferguson on dealing with a Chinese tallow tree invasion. Uh, we have a question about mining ether and the ROI behind it from Brandon Todd. And we have dealing with a high full of drone brood from Michael Jordan. We also have the mythology of socially awkward adults due to homeschooling for me. Um, that does sound like a question for Mike and Sue Laprise, and I may even have them follow up on this. But this question did come in for me, so I wanted to answer it, because I think I'm going to break it down to the most simplistic uh, answer you possibly could, which will leave the person with the objection with absolutely no room for objection. And then when we get into that one, we're going to discuss whether or not the objection is really the issue, or does the person just not want to do it? Because it's important that you figure that out when people give you an objection. Sometimes an objection is, I really am concerned about this. Sometimes an objection is, this is the convenient thing to say. Well, I'll leave it till we get there. But kind of like, do you want to go out tonight? You, know, you ask a girl out, and she says, well, I have plans. Yeah, her plans are not going out with you. <laughs> all right, we'll get to all of that more in just a bit. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey guys, you know I've always been a fan of Backwoods Home Magazine. Well, how about this? How about Self-Reliance Magazine from the same people that brought you Backwoods Home? Many of you know I've been a Backwoods Home subscriber for over 20 years. Dave Duffy and the crew over there have brought out a new magazine simply called Self-Reliance Magazine. It's at self-reliance.com online, and you can learn more about it by the link in today's show notes. But it's amazing. Just take Backwoods Home up the production value, take out all the politics, and go 100% hardcore homesteading, self-reliance, self-sufficiency. And that's what you get in Self-Reliance Magazine. Check them out today, self-reliance.com. You know, Western Botanicals is my personal first choice for everything herbal, from whole raw herbs to preparations and ointments. In fact, two products I use all the time from Western Botanicals are the Deep Heat Ointment and the Turmeric Combo. Western Botanicals is the no-nonsense, no-hype herbal source you can trust. Learn more at westernbotanicals.com. Okay, before we get into your calls, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode. <clears throat> um, I am actually pre-recording a Friday show on a Thursday, and not, this time not so I can go off fishing. This time uh, my wife has asked me to go with her and the grandchildren to a, a Friday outing, and uh, not exactly a place I'm super excited to go to, but hey, you know, you got to take care of your grandkids and happy wife, happy life. So I'm ahead of uh, Ben and David on the uh, year that was. 
But it turns out that since I started the, the show you heard yesterday so early in the day, I was ahead of Ben yesterday, and he hadn't put his segment into the year 29 yet. So I'm going to read to go along with what we learned yesterday about you know uh, Tiberius and all the stuff that was going down on in Rome. What else was going on in the year 29? A little short segment from Softball Ben. He says, The death of Jesus. According to Catholic tradition, this is the year Jesus died. There is a range of years that fit the description given in the Gospel, such as Pilate ru ruling and Caiaphas being high priest. Um, my take by South Bob Ben. Other Christian traditions place the death at slightly different times, decade uh, times decade of overlap between the two leaders' reigns, which would be 26 to 36 A.D., depending on how they interpret the other clues in the Gospels as to this exact year. Note, Ben is a Christian and believes in the death and miraculous resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, it is interesting to me, so I'm going to leave all the religious overtones out of this and just talk about history when we're talking about ancient history, <clears throat> trying to put things together when you have multiple sources, this is what you have to do. Like, when you see a reference to something, you try to find another source that references that same occurrence to try to actually pin down the time if the time's not given or you're dealing with an unknown. And I think it's one of the things that makes history so intriguing to many people because it's like being a detective at a crime scene. The problem is the crime scene isn't 48 hours cold, it might be 4,800 years cold, or in this case, about 2,000 years cold, and you're trying to figure out what went on based on third-party information of something that happened in the past, with some really good, strong sources and some not so strong. And uh, this is a good reason that we should be doing a better job of chronicling what's going on in the world today. I don't think there's ever been a time where we've, we've done it as well as we do now, but I wonder how many things we think of as insignificant will be significant in the future. And uh, I wonder if people will be able to read them and, and, and interpret them, even though we're recording them now. I, we, we talked about this in an, another show. I don't remember which one it was, but it, it, was, it was generally this kind of a thing. Like, you know, if, if you no longer, the, like a, a parchment, you know, rotting away or something, and uh, how something that seems insignificant could become significant. But today we have all these computers and things like that. I just recently saw an article that was circulating around on Facebook, and it's some ungodly amount of gobs of information that have been lost because they're like using like 80s and even early 90s computer technology. Old floppies and stuff like that have just eventually been discarded. And, and, and so you wonder, like, with what's coming in technology over the next 50 years, how many of these things that we think will never go away will be hard to find. Now, one of the things I really like that's on the Internet today you guys should check it out, called archive.org. Basically, it takes snapshots of websites and preserves them like a historical archives. And that's not really directly related to the history segment today, but it is, it's our modern scribe. That's what archive.org is. It's the modern scribe that collects the information before it disappears. If you have, if you have a website you followed for a long time, <clears throat> like even a big website, it's kind of fun sometimes to go to archive.org and stick that in there and look at what it looked like 10 years ago or 12 years ago or even further back because it goes further back. Check it out, archive.org. want to remind you guys once again about the Member Support Brigade or MSB. That's the main way that you can help support the show and the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast. When I put that program together almost eight years ago now, I wanted to always make sure that members got 
a return of their investment. I wanted to make sure that whatever they paid me, they got back more than that, because I think that's just the smart way to do business. So I'd like to remind you about just two of the benefits you get as an MSB member today that give you basically a 100% return on your investment from day one. First, you get a, a free lifetime discount membership to Safe Castle Royal. Vikram Tala sells that every day for $49. Bucks. Western Botanicals gives you their premium membership discount for one year for free. That would cost you $50. Bucks. That's $99 return on just two discount membership programs that I get you as a supporting member of the MSB. So consider joining today to learn about all the other great benefits. Drop by the survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and to see all the ways you can sign up, scroll to the bottom of the page. And with that, let's go ahead and uh, get into your questions for the expert counsel today. First question I have is for Old Doc Bones on the treatment and prevention of anemia. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net. Now with close to a thousand articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way, and designer of an entire line of medical kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Carlos from Hot Springs, who writes, I have a question for Dr. Bones. My wife has been struggling with anemia and wanted to know what she can do to help boost her iron intake. She has tried taking over-the-counter iron, but she gets sick to her stomach every time she takes it. Any advice would be appreciated. Carlos Low iron is the most common nutritional deficiency in the United States. About 10% of women are iron deficient, according to figures from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. That's bad because iron is an essential mineral. The major reason we need it is that it helps to transport oxygen throughout the body. If you don't have enough iron, your body can't make enough oxygen-carrying red blood cells. And a lack of red blood cells is called iron deficiency anemia. Iron is also necessary to maintain healthy cells, skin, hair, and nails. Starting at adolescence, women need more iron because they lose blood each time they have a menstruation. That's why women from age about 18 to 50 need to get about 18 milligrams of iron each day, while men the same age or older women can get away with just about 8 milligrams. Iron supplements can fill this need but can cause side effects like your wife has, and usually stomach upset such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, or constipation. It's possible that your wife might benefit from making some dietary changes with iron-rich foods instead of iron supplements. Food sources contain two chemical forms of iron, heme iron and non-heme iron. Heme iron, named because it comes from hemoglobin, occurs in foods such as meat, poultry, and fish. Chicken liver, for example, provides the highest level of available iron, about 12.8 milligrams in a 3.5-ounce serving. Some vegetables, such as lentils, beans, and spinach, contain non-heme iron, and although these foods provide less iron than animal products, eating them with foods known to enhance the absorption of iron, such as citrus fruits, for example, also helps boost iron levels. At the same time, you should avoid drinking coffee and tea, especially at the same time you eat foods that contain iron. Both coffee and tea contain tannins, which interfere with iron absorption. Soy products may also inhibit iron absorption. Some herbal treatments may help increase the absorption of iron and other nutrients. The University of Maryland Medical Center says that alfalfa, dandelion, burdock, and yellow dock have long been used to increase levels of hemoglobin, but discuss these with your doctor before taking them as they may interfere with some medications. 
This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do Nurse Amy and me a big favor by following us on Twitter at Prepper Show or our YouTube channel, maybe, at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy and our podcast, The Survival Medicine Hour, at blogtalkradio.com. Also, don't forget that the Members Support Brigade gets a special coupon code for discounts off our medical kits and individual supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. Thanks. Good stuff from Doc Bones, kind of sticking in the uh, medical world for a while, even though Gary Collins is not a doctor. He is certainly switched on when it comes to nutrition. I have a, a listener who called in with a or actually wrote in with a question for Gary Collins, basically saying, hey, um, my doctor basically says I'm going to get kidney stones or destroy my kidneys or kill myself if I do paleo dieting. Gary, go ahead. Uh, keep your rant to a minimum, but let's hear the truth here. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of PrimalPowerMethod.com, where I discuss all things paleo, primal diet, lifestyle, life simplification, going off the grid, health and wellness, exercise, all kinds of great things to improve your life. Uh, the old paleo will give you kidney failure or kidney stones and kill you myth. I cannot believe this individual's doctor actually said some of the things they said. Uh, relaying information that younger people are, are dying and getting increased kidney stones, kidney failure from the paleo diet. It's completely utter BS. I don't know where that doctor got that information. I would highly recommend you change doctors because this doctor is obviously ill-informed and basically an idiot and has no clue about nutrition. Zero. To say that to you tells me how uninformed, and my guess is they're a vegan or vegetarian from the advice they're giving you, which tends to be very dogmatic and hateful towards any paleo type of eating. So, and eating, recommending eating a maximum of six ounces of animal flesh or animal protein and getting your protein from other sources primarily to increase your bean content is a way to have zero muscle mass, uh, a hormone, hormonal imbalance, gassy, probably poop your pants and be overall miserable. Um, that's the diet that doctor basically just gave you. Kidney stones come from primarily dehydration, a lack of drinking or cons- drinking water. And not only that, but the proper source of water, not tap water. Tap water has a whole host of issues. And I always recommend people stay far away from, especially municipal city tap water. You know, smaller towns, usually they have better, better water, but you always have to check into the processes that are used. I haven't drank tap water for Decades since I grew up on a well, I've been drinking bottled water, which has its issues, but it's better than that tap stuff. I can taste and smell all the chemicals and additives in that they put into city water. Um, the other one is the standard American diet is actually what gives you kidney stones because it's high in calcium, high in sodium. Then you throw in not consuming proper amounts of water, you know, drinking uh, highly processed, you know, soft drinks and all the lattes with a thousand calories of garbage and sugar in them or without having the proper amount of micronutrients, primarily vitamin D and magnesium in order to get that calcium into the place it's supposed to be, which is your bones, um, your teeth. You end up having a lot of free flowing calcium and sodium that deposits 
not only in your, your blood vessels, but also in, guess what? Your kidneys, your kidneys, kidney is your excretion filter, filter system. That is where kidney stones come from. They don't come from eating animal flesh. That is such a load of crap. I, <laughs> I don't even know where that comes. I, it's been around, like I said, the myth's been around a while. Now, there is an instance when you would not want to eat the paleo diet or a high protein diet in general to include combining plant material uh, to get your essential amino acids, your eight essential amino acids or nine, depending who your thought process, that if you have kidney damage or kidney disease, something hereditary, then they have to change. You have to change your diet. But this is very, very, very rare. Not just because you had kidney stones. That is not it. So what I would recommend is if you're interested in the paleo diet, do it correctly. I outline it in my Primal Power Method series of books. So make sure to check that out. And I also have a lot of ton of free information on my website. I know Jack will agree with me on this whole paleo myth because Jack's a paleo guy. I guarantee he'll go off on what that that doctor said as well. Um, And if you guys are interested, uh, sign up for my updates and newsletter. I'm giving away the chapter one of my new book, Going Off the Grid, and some other free goodies. Do include some uh, a paleo primal diet uh, shopping list, which is included there, and the food pyramid. So this may be very helpful for this individual as well. Thanks again, guys. Um, you might think that calling a doctor an idiot is going a little bit too far. I think it was pretty appropriate myself. Um, and there are doctors that are idiots. There's no stupid doctors, but there's doctors that are idiots. And one can become an idiot by thinking they know something and being completely wrong about it and unwilling to actually adjust and figure out where they're wrong. Doctors fall into this trap because think about the amount of schooling, how long they're in school being grilled and drilled into being you know, able to know all the things that they have to know, and then the procedural uh, environment of going through residency. And at that point, they become completely convinced that everything that they're told is true until someone from their magical little world tells them that it isn't. So if they read some you know, brief sent to their office in the, the five minutes of free time they have that day that says paleo nutrition causes uh, kidney damage by some pharmaceutical company that's trying to sell something that might not even be related to it, they just believe it. And then they behave like idiots, even though they're incredibly smart. It happens all the time. I hear it from MDs all the time. It's like if you, I, I would love to ask an MD that says that, okay, please please sit down, paste pen, pen and paper. I know you know how to write. You wouldn't got through medical school without that. Uh, though I can't read your prescription very well. Um, but I want you to write down for me three days of meals for somebody on paleo, but they can't do it. But you know, they'll talk about it. Like, How can you say that if you don't even know what the diet really is? And most of them don't. Anyway, next up I have a question for Stephen Harris on engineering. What do engineers actually do? And trying to figure out what way to go with their schooling as far as obtaining their engineering uh, degree. Or should they even do that? Steve, take it away. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. Got one here from Ben. And Ben says, what does, what does an engineer actually do on a day-to-day basis? Details. I was looking into majoring in engineering because I enjoy hands-on problem solving and I'm good at math and physics. He got a 740 on his SAT math and a 740 on his SAT 
reading, which makes him smarter than than the average bear. He goes on, however, as I look more into what an engineer does on a day-to-day basis, it seems like they mostly sit at a computer and rarely get any hands-on time with what they're working on. I worked at a job where everything we do was on the computer, and the, and the company was a Silicon Valley relaxed feel, and I would describe that work environment as tolerable at best. I don't want to te- spend around a hundred grand uh, and waste four years of my life for an education that will probably likely land me in a Dilbert cubicle and hating life so I can make enough to put just to pay for college. My backup plan is to go to the local tech school for its one-year machinist certificate program and go from there. Well, I wrote him back and said, what type of engineering are you interested in? He says, I'm looking at mechanical, electrical, or agriculture agricultural engineering, but I don't have to declare until the end of my sophomore year. Uh, ben, uh, I'm going to be very, very, very nice to you and uh, gently and calmly say, you're whining at me like a snowflake. And considering it's going to be someone like me interviewing you for a job, you don't want to sound like that. You have complete indecision on uh, what you want to do. You really don't know what you want to do, and you are going to have to find out what you really want to do. And guess what? Uh, your education is not four years of college. Your education is every day of your life. It does not ever stop. Not if you want to stay ahead and be the top person in your field. Your education never ends. And the majority of your education is self-education, stuff you teach yourself. Now, I'm telling you this in a little bit of a stern voice because I want my point to come across, Ben. It doesn't sound like you are getting good advice from counselors and other people, and I am honored that you are reaching out to me for advice as well as Jack Spierko. I'm sure he will add tremendously to the end of this. Um, but let's... um Let's look at mechanical engineering. Are you a research and development engineer? Are you a product engineer? Are you a releasing engineer? You know, what is your area of expertise in mechanical engineering? Can Are you working for a small company? Are you working for yourself? Are you working um, for a big company? It, what you do varies tremendously, but I guarantee you, before you start designing and getting hands-on with something, you're going to draw it on a piece of paper, and the computer just makes it easier than drawing it on a piece of paper. If you're going to design an HVAC system for a new vehicle, you are going to be a part of a team, and you had better know a great deal about the car nose cycle, pumps, heat exchange, heat exchangers, inside and outside temp- uh, thermal coefficients, and everything. It, it is a lot of knowledge. What I would recommend, for example, uh, if you're going into me- mechanical engineering, I would go get your six-month or one-year machinist certificate. Uh, I'd say try for the six-month one and learn how to run a and, and program from a computer a CNC machine, a vertical mill, and a lathe. And then, if you felt really ambitious, Go for a three-month welding program and learn how to stick arc weld, 
MIG weld and TIG weld and learn to a TIG weld aluminum, okay? And then uh, go on YouTube and learn how to make a charcoal foundry to melt, melt soda pop cans and uh, make cast an aluminum ingot, do a front facing surface on it with the vertical mill, make it into a block of aluminum, then program the CNC machine and machine it. And when you go for your job interview after you got your mechanical engineering degree, they go, well, what have you done? It's like, here, I made this. What do you mean? What do you mean I made this? Well, I melted, I no foundry techniques. I melted the aluminum, made the mold, poured the mold, machined it, and then I designed it on the CAD CAM system and it machined this whole thing for me. And you're, and what you're seeing is what I did. So I would go to the technical school or might recommend it and learn how to weld and how to be a CNC uh, or a machinist and do that part time. And then, while you're going to school and taking 14 to 16 credit hours per semester for mechanical engineering, you let your work pay for your college, and you try to come out of college with zero debt. Then you can go to a company and apply for job. Oh, oh, intern, intern. If after two years of you know being at the college, you get a chance to intern someplace for a summer, I don't care if they're paying you ten bucks an hour. You go friggin' intern. It's worth it if you pay them ten bucks an hour. You don't know the careers that my group made for kids coming from the University of Michigan who interned with us. Okay, once you intern, you're on the inside of the industry. It's a lot easier to do things and find new jobs when you're on the inside of the industry than when you're on the outside. So you're really, really going to want to find out what you want to do because electrical engineering and agricultural engineering and mechanical engineering are worlds apart. Electrical engineering, you can actually do a lot of it on your own because if you're dealing with electronics. And uh, then, again, are you a specialist in analog radio frequency? Are you a specialist in digital design? Are you a specialist in uh, computer design, CPUs, memory, uh, GPUs, and everything that goes along with it? Uh, all of them are huge fields. Now, if you really, really want to become very good, and let's say you went to work for Chrysler, uh, you could tell them, hey, I want my master's degree. They would pay for you full-time uh, to go back to school part-time. So you'd work full-time every day as an engineer, and you'd go to school in the evening to get your master's. Uh, another career path is to go all the way to your doctorate. If I knew now what what I – if I knew then what I knew now, I would have never, ever – finished college without getting my doctoral degree. And when you have your doctoral degree, you can go to NASA, you can go to the government, you can go to anywhere, and you can get your foot in the door to get an interview to get a job. I know a lot of PhDs with who are really stupid. The reason everyone came to me at Chrysler with electrical chemical issues is because the guy who was in charge of electrochemistry for Chrysler was an Indian guy who would fall asleep in meetings. Okay? He was, he had zero ambition. In fact, my boss called him a dead fish. 
So they would come to me because I would actually respond and come up and with hypotheses and test things and do things, and that's all from my attitude, my passion, and my desire for what I do, which you're not communicating to me in the email. Now, of all the people in the world, okay, I know t- email does not convey tone very well. I get burned by that all the time. Steve, you're being mean. No, I wasn't. I was just typing quickly. So, Ben, I'm really on your side. And anything I said with a little bit of edginess to it is so you're hearing it from me rather than making the mistake in an interview or talking to someone else. Only, only ever take advice from people who are significantly, significantly more successful than you. Your counselors are not more successful than you. Uh, your teachers very likely uh, may not be more successful than you. You need to find the experts in the field. In fact, if you got further questions on something, write me back specifics and I will get you in touch with someone who I know who is an expert in that field, and you can talk to them and help try to make a decision on where you want to go and what you want to do, but you're really going to have to find out what you are passionate about. Also, a little secret, if you do end up getting a Ph.D., spend the extra year and get two Ph.D.s. Most people don't realize you can get a second Ph.D., you know, with very little effort. A friend of mine got his Ph.D. in psychiatry and got a Ph.D. in emergency management, and he makes about $450,000 a year uh, and for, you know, being the, the expert on the subject. So if you went and got a Ph.D. in mechanical engineering, you also might pick up a Ph.D. in material science. So now you know about aluminum, iron, ceramics, graphite, carbon. I mean, you understand all of the materials that you could be working with, plus you're a design mechanical engineer, and you know how to run a CNC machine and a lathe, and you know how to weld. That gives you an incredible amount of ability. So if you go to your local tech program, learn some stuff, get a job, use that job to pay for your college, get from college what you want. Remember, you're teaching yourself in college, okay? They're just providing the environment for you to learn. Teachers aren't teaching you. You're teaching yourself with what they are teaching you. So I would recommend that and do get back with me with any particular areas you might be interested in. Uh, I'll call you, talk to you, and uh, I will get you in c- contact with people who are walk-on-water experts in the subject. This is Steve Harris. If you want to hear all the great stuff I've done with Jack, get a hold of me or see my stuff at Stephen1234.com. I think the career advice and the education path advice is great there. Um, I want to start out, or I just want to add a little bit on with the beginning where Steve said you're kind of whining at me like a snowflake, and he was he wasn't you know he wasn't all Harris about it, but I'm sure there's somebody like ooh like was that really necessary? I don't know if it's necessary, but let me tell you where it's coming from. I'll tell you where it's coming. It, it's not hey I don't know what I want to do as far as engineering. I don't know what what field path I want to take or whatever. Um, it's, it, it, I guarantee you what made Steve feel that way was the very beginning 
uh, talking about you know sitting in a cubicle, Dilbert-like, tolerable at best. And I think this is a problem that the, the, the millennial generation has. I think every generation in modern times had this problem. I think the millennials have it more. And it is a lack of patience when they get a job. I'm not talking about the, when they're struggling to get any job and no one will hire them and, and people say they're lazy. And they're like, I've, I've applied to everything, right? Like, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when they do get a reasonable entry-level job. You know, you ask them six months into it, well, how do you like your job? Oh, I don't feel like I'm making a difference. Dude, six months into your first real job, you're not there to make a difference. You're there to do whatever the hell your employer needs done. And it's up to you to figure out how to develop your education through that employment. It's up to you to figure out how to find ways to finagle your way into a project or an opportunity. It's up to you to figure out how to take your mundane bullshit that you've done for six months and put it on a resume for your next job in a way that sounds a lot better, frankly. right? I mean, if you put down, if you write your job description on your resume the way that your job description was written on the posting for someone to do that job, you're not getting a better job because then you're that person. Well, you're not looking for another job like that. You're looking to move up. See, and I think this is one of the biggest problems that most people have. I think, in general, when I've reviewed resumes, that's what I've seen. Like, when I read their job description and what they did, I feel like, okay, what this guy did is he went to his HR department's, you know, intranet, And, and, and looked up a posting for his job and then used it on his resume. And he may not have, but it reads that way. I don't feel like he's done any stretching whatsoever to show me that he's gone beyond what his employer's asked. And, and some would call that lying. It's not lying if you do it honestly, right? Okay, That's a Jack Spirico quote. It's not lying if you do it honestly. And what I mean by that is... Um, Let's say that your job is to uh, interact with customers. Well, I would say that you know a word that you would use with that, if it's a retail environment, is point of sale. Okay, you know, interacting with with point of sale systems. That means you run a cash register. But you, I mean, I, I'm not going to start going through all different terms like that. But I mean, that's the kind of the way you have to think. If you have people that you are in charge of at any time, that's called team leadership, right? And I, you know, and, and you also the, the the concept of getting all these little skills, these you know, three months on this and six months on that. I think it's fantastic. And I think one of the things, if I were Ben, that I would consider is maybe you just do all that shit Steve said without even worrying about the the engineering degree. If engineering's not really what you want, because engineering school's tough. And I don't think it's snowflake like to say, hey, look, I don't want to end up with $100,000 in debt just so I can get a job that pays my student loans. I, I am all about that. I don't think that's snowflake like at all. Um, and I do think the concept that you can work your way through school is still valid, but it ain't as valid as it was when Steve and I were young. And it's something that people in our age bracket tend to not really understand what it's like to be 20 years old and trying to work your way through college today. And I would say consider community college, but with engineering, a lot of times, I mean, you've got to be really careful with that because you know, you'll have you know, two years of, 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 of transferable credits, but not to a school for an engineering degree. Or maybe only 
50% or 70% of those will transfer or what have you. But what you can do is you can look at various engineering programs and basically talk to an administrator and find out, like, well, what are all the courses that I could take in community college that would transfer, even if I didn't transfer in as a junior, right, And because you're declaring your major at the end of your sophomore year, even if I transferred in, like, with, you know, one and a half years, because you can save a shitload of money that way. And then here's the good news. If you do that, and if you're hell-bent on college, and you get that far in through community college at a much lower cost, and now you can. Yes, you, If you can't work your way through community college, you need a job that's better than the lowest-paid employee and the shittiest employee that gets no hours at McDonald's. Because you absolutely can work your way through community college. Don't give me that shit. So if you do that and you've tailored it to, I want to make sure that everything that I do here would be transferable to a school pursuing an engineering degree, it will transfer to pursuing anything if you change your mind. And, and with that level of education, and then welding and CNC programming, cat, you may be able to go find yourself some level of entry-level job that sometimes goes to a person with an engineering degree, but not always. And you might find that employer might like pay for you to go to school, because that shit still happens. Or they might say, well, we don't need you to have a degree. We need you to have this certification or this additional knowledge or be able to learn how to do this type of program for this, and they'll pay for that too. There's lots of opportunities here, and that's why I kind of like the idea of getting some hands-on, some real-world experience, and additionally, beginning that college walk, being very meticulous with taking courses that you know will transfer for anything. Because you can certainly knock out your first year that way. There's actually no good financial reason whatsoever to not basically do your first year at a community college. Because it opens up a lot of... Here's the thing. You are indecisive, and it's not because you're a snowflake. You're indecisive because you just don't fucking know. All right? That's, that's, real, that's being 18 or 19 years old. You just aren't really sure what you want to do. So don't lock your in, yourself into something too hard right at the beginning. And I don't mean too difficult. I mean too hard to change your mind about. I know a girl, uh, ex-wife of one of my, my friends, who has an architectural degree. And by the last year of school, she said, well, I, I just have to finish it. There's no, it would be stupid not to. And today she designs closets and not like an architect. Like somebody that just uses, yeah, so like one of these companies that comes in and does your closet for you, right? You, you don't, she doesn't need any degree to do what she does, but she actually likes it. So I'd say you're in that indecision spot and it's okay to not know. But you also have to take the approach of when you do have employment, It's an opportunity, and if you're wanting it to be something really amazing right away, you're going to remain disappointed. It's always going to take time to build your career. Uh, let's take another one. This one is for Nick Ferguson on the invasive Chinese tallow tree. Hey there, Nick Ferguson here with another answer for the Expert Council, and today I have a question from Brent right near Houston, Texas. I was actually down there and did a couple consultations not too long ago, one in spring and another in Hempstead, so I'm kind of familiar with the area. But first, I wanted to let everyone know about something I am really excited about being able to offer to the TSP community, and everyone out there who's interested in homesteading and permaculture, head over to my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash homegrown liberty for a full explanation but the quick version is i want to do basically a free pdc but it's not going to exactly be a pdc and since it's free 
I'll most likely not be doing certification for it unless you guys speak up and demand I certify somehow. I'll figure that out. What I want to do is more of a practical application of permaculture design through showing you how it's done from the ground up. I want to take you with me on my consults via video, and you'll get to follow along as we redo our homestead from the ground up using all of those design principles and kind of just show you how we're designing our homestead from the ground up. Anyways, just go check out the Patreon page for a short video explaining it all and a written explanation. I think this kind of thing is long overdue, and I have a feeling a ton of you guys are going to be really pumped about joining me on this project. Best of all, it's totally voluntarism and community in action. I want to say more, but I need to answer a question on Chinese tallow tree. So if this piqued your interest, pause right now and check out the Patreon page. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash homegrown liberty. That's patreon.com forward slash homegrown liberty. Okay, so on to the question. I read through all the details on your question, Brent, but I'll give a summary for the listeners. He's dealing with Chinese tallow trees and wants to know what I think about it being labeled as invasive. Should he mount a campaign to eliminate them from his property? How should he get rid of them if I think he should? And how to leverage them as a benefit? All right, a couple things here. First off, Chinese tallow tree, uh, I think it's Triadica sebiferum, is very invasive, and some reports list it as having risen to nearly one quarter of all trees in the eight-county Houston area. That's like 25% of all of the trees, not the tree species, but all of the trees. Loblolly pine takes second place at 19%. If you do some research on the tree, there are unsubstantiated claims that Ben Franklin imported the tree. He did import uh, some trees, but with genetic testing, it's actually been a different strain than the ones he brought over. So the plague of Chinese tile tree isn't his fault, just kind of. I thought that was interesting. So I say, yes, it's invasive. It'll have quite a negative impact on the forest ecology of the southern U.S., so I'd consider trying to keep it under control on your property if you can. But first, I want to point out one major benefit. It blooms for over a month, um, anywhere from four weeks to eight weeks, and the honeybees go ape over it. They'll make a fantastic honey from the nectar, and they make a ton of honey. One number from the American Bee Journal reports surplus honey yield in the Houston area from Chinese tallow tree. I don't know how they figure that out. But they report it to just that nectar source to be 60 to 100 pounds of honey per colony. And that's pretty good. If you do the math, that's between five and a little to a little over eight gallons of honey. So they're not all bad. Um, another benefit I can think of is it's great chop and drop or biochar feedstock. I mean, any any plant that isn't really prickly or thorny or really poisonous to touch that grows really fast is just man, that's a lot of um, a lot of plant matter that you can drop right on the ground and build soil with. So I think that's a great benefit. Some people think that that's a, a big drawback, but I call that a, a plus. So now that we've kind of gone over some of the negatives and positives of the tree, you'll have to make a judgment call on if you really want to fight that battle depending on how large your property it is. And 
how many of the tall trees are surrounding your property. I mean, if you're surrounded on all sides and it's just they're dropping, you know, they can drop like a hundred thousand seeds per tree. So you might be kind of swimming upstream in your efforts, but if you keep a mown perimeter, you may be able to slow the spread onto your property and just make chopping and dropping and mulching and burning kind of a monthly chore. You can turn it into biochar and put it in your garden. As for getting rid of them, I hate to say that the most efficient method is to cut down the stump and use an herbicide on the stump. And I hate to do something like that. So first off, try a couple other less toxic methods. Chop the tree down, let all the limbs dry out, and then build a fire around the stump using the tree material. If you get it hot, you should be able to kill the root crown. Uh, just make sure you're being responsible and don't set fire to you know the whole Houston area. I will not be responsible if you do that, so use proper safety precautions. Uh, m- maybe you could try cutting it at soil level, drilling holes, and putting some table salt in the holes in the stump. I've never tried either of those methods with that species, so I don't know firsthand if they would work, but it seems to me that either one of those methods might get you a good result without bringing toxic chemicals onto your property. Again, I have no idea the scope of your problem or how much work it may develop into over the years, but I always encourage the simplest, quickest, and the least nuclear option first. Uh, but if this turns into a problem that you ca- just can't manage without a one-off usage of herbicides to help you get things under control, then by all means, I'd rather see a landowner use herbicides once and manage things well afterwards than allow a monoculture to develop and choke out all the native flora and fauna. So just keep that in mind. So, man, I hope that set of answers helps you and any other listeners out there who are dealing with Chinese tallow tree. And one more thing, I'm planning a trip up to Indiana, then across to Ohio, and then back south to Louisiana. So I'll be going through Missouri, um, Arkansas, Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, um, and maybe down to like Mississippi or Alabama and then back over to Louisiana. So it just depends. Um, but if you're listening and you're interested in a half or full day of consulting and you're in any of those states or around there, shoot me an email to nick, N-I-C-K, at homegrownliberty.com and I'll get you the details so we can schedule it all out. Thanks for the great questions, guys. Keep them coming. Do good things. Um, we do have some of it around here in north central Texas, and I will confirm uh, that bees love it uh, that, that, as far as tiny Chinese shallow tree. Um, I have actually some on my property. I've cut some down, but some have come back. Some I've just not gotten to cut down yet. And uh, in the spring when it blooms, it looks like a bee breathing, like like, uh, like the tree's breathing bees. Um, so that is that is a good thing, I guess, about it. Next, I have a question for Brandon Todd on mining Ethereum. Brandon, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com, here to answer another question for the expert council. This question comes in for Bill, where he's basically wondering if it's currently worth it to build a mining rig to mine uh, cryptocurrencies, and in particular, Ethereum. So he says, Brandon... I've been looking into building a rig to mine cryptocurrencies. It looks like a decent rig can be built for around $2,500. Estimates of the $2,500 rig is it should produce $350 a month using Ethereum and its current price of $300. This is this to note. This is on the 6th of June, 2017. Based on that, it will take a little over seven months to break even on the rig. 
in your educated opinion, would it be better to just spend the $2,500 on currencies or build a rig and get into mining? Thanks in advance. Well, great question there from Bill. So uh, let's let's take a look at what we need to consider. So first off, I just want to tell everybody, you know, I'd approach mining the same as I would approach buying and selling cryptocurrencies. Never invest more than you can afford to lose. Think of it as a long shot. Um, you know, also leave yourself uh, a long timeline of a year or so to expect any sort of profit in case these markets go sideways uh, for some time. So have some capital built up so you're not forced to liquidate your operation, you know, <laughs> a couple months into it if, if things go downhill, right? This might seem obvious, but I say this because I talk to a lot of people that get into all this, you know, doing all this math and crunching the numbers to see some return on paper after a measured time and sort of forget about all the risks all the risk with these uh, quote-unquote unknowns, or these quote-unquote knowns that they're in their calculations. Understand that a lot of these quote-unquote knowns are really variables subject to change at any time. The only real knowns that you have are the cost of the hardware, cost of electricity for about a year out or so, and the amount of hashes that your hardware will produce. All the other factors calculated that you would calculate to see a profit on paper over a certain time frame are unknowns. Some examples of what I mean by that you know, are possible forks to the network or coin, which could result in supply changes, reward changes, difficulty changes, and the like. So just know that what is consensus right now with whatever you're considering mining could change in short order. Having said all that, if you're already a hardware geek, then maybe this is sort of, this is also a hobby that you get enjoyment out of anyway, and or might already have some of this stuff laying around doing nothing at the moment. Or you could see this as an opportunity to give yourself an education on hardware building in general, which may suit you in the future. You know, so I, I did this sort of. You know, I didn't build a rig from scratch with GPUs and a motherboard and all that. I kind of, you know, I bought an ASIC used, and so I, I went on Amazon.com used, and I bought a Bitmain ASIC. I didn't want to invest a lot of money because you know, I didn't know anything about mining. And so I picked one up for about $100. These things depreciate, just to know, like, um, these things depreciate... In value pretty rapidly as uh, the newer, faster cards and rigs and ASICs come out. Um, and ASIC just stands for Application Specific Integrated Circuit, which is uh, you know an engineered piece of hardware to do one thing and one thing only very, very, very well. I got a good analogy for that uh, down at the end of this recording here. Um, so yeah, you know, um, I bought it and I, you know, I watched some YouTube videos, I read some PDFs, and I got it up and running. Figured out how to hook up the power supply unit and get it online and log into the pool and figure out if I wanted to mine by myself solo or figure out if I wanted to join a pool. And so um, did a little bit of both. And uh, you know, I never mined any Bitcoin for a profit at the time because the rig I bought was outdated and it wouldn't even beat electricity at the time. And I knew that. That's why I only you know spent a hundred dollars to learn about mining. But um, I will say that, you know, a year later, uh, all that Bitcoin that I mined a year back is now profitable because of the rise in price of Bitcoin. So, you know, I could afford to spend a little money at a loss and wait. Um, you know, I, I figured it as a total loss this whole time. I just wanted to learn how to what it's like to mine. But it actually turned out to be profitable. But that's just because we've been in this, you know, crazy bull run. Um, so it might not always be that way. And I like to also note, you know, I remember 2013 when we had Bitcoin that went up to $1,000 uh, at the Mt. Gox peak. You know, if you were getting into mining then, um, you know, uh, that would have been you, you're facing a, a year long bear trend where it was like a slow grinding trend all the way down to $200 a coin. And I remember seeing 
mining operations liquidate uh, and go out of business and seeing a lot of uh, used mining equipment show up on eBay at you know drastically devalued prices, depreciated prices. So, you know, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but just just something to consider. Um, you know, mining is profitable. Otherwise, you know, nobody would do it. But, you know, a lot of these profitable mining operations are pretty big and they're places of very cheap inputs like cooling and electricity. So some things to think about. But so let's let's take a look at your numbers. You've got 2,500 total cost. I came up pretty close to the same numbers. I got around $120 for a motherboard, six to seven GPUs at around $300 apiece, totaling $1,800 to $2,100. $100 hard drive and a $400 1200-watt power supply unit it would take to power all of that. This brings the total cost to around $25 to $2,800 per rig to mine Ethereum. You said that you might break even at seven months at a price of $300 per Ether. Uh, per, per ether. Ether, doing some math, that would be about $11.90 a day or 0.396825 Ethereum per day. You didn't provide what hash rate you would have, but just judging by 67 standard Radon RX 570-580 video cards, you would get close to 200 mega hashes per second, and that would probably be overclocked. These numbers are, for the most part, consistent with your plan. One more thing to consider about mining Ethereum is that they do have a roadmap to move from proof-of-work to proof-of-stake system in the near future with a phase they are calling Casper, like Casper the Ghost. When this happens, mining will get exponentially hard and not be worth it after some time. Hard to say exactly when Casper will be ready, but you you might get another year or two before it gets implemented. Just something to think about with, with Ethereum in particular. So, I would I would like to add that I think investing in GPUs rather than ASICs are a little less risky. And here's that analogy I want to talk about, you know, the difference between an ASIC, which is an application-specific integrated circuit, or a GPU, which is just a, gra- you know, a graphics card, um, a graphics, you know, processing unit. So, and then there's a CPU, which is a, you know, central processing unit like all computers have. Um, and some computers have graphics units in them as well, um, like the higher-end computers that you can use for rendering or gaming and stuff like that. Um, And you can buy these GPUs separate without without the whole rest of the computer, right? So that's what some of these people are doing. For those that are new, they're like, what is all this stuff? And so an ASIC is something that they've just come up in this industry to design to do just creating hashes to win blocks and like Bitcoin or other, other currencies. So this analogy I like to think of is like an ASIC is sort of like a top fuel dragster, a, and, and, and a GPU is sort of like a Ferrari, and then a CPU is sort of like a pickup truck or a minivan, right? So if we're thinking about hashing and trying to win blocks, we'll think of just top speed going in a straight line for a short distance. And so a top fuel dragster is going to beat those other options every day of the week, no problem, by a long shot, right? And so the ASIC is the top fuel dragster there. A Ferrari does pretty good, gets pretty fast, will definitely meet the, beat the CPU or the minivan, uh, but it you know can also do other things like cornering, and it's very luxurious, so it's got a lot of bells and whistles, so it'll beat the dragster in a lot of other things, but it will never beat the dragster in just hashing, right? So you know the Ferrari would be a better car to have for a lot of other reasons other than just going really fast in a straight line. So that's why I say you know uh, GPUs are... are are a little less risky because, you know, if this, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, if this Bitcoin, or I'm sorry, Ethereum mining thing doesn't work out, you know, if you've got other uses or could come up with them over time, like if you have uh, kids that like to game or if you're a gamer yourself or if you have any need for rendering high-definition uh, graphics like uh, using 3D modeling software 
like SolidWorks or some other stuff, then these things come in handy for a variety of different reasons down the road. So, I mean, with ASICs, man, all you have is a space heater, you know, other than its ability to hash really, really fast. And so that's that's another thing I forgot to mention is, you know, that, that ASIC that I bought, I actually measured, you know, all the, I thought about all the inputs and outputs. And because I live in Minnesota, in the wintertime, it gets really, really cold in my basement, and I run a space heater down there anyway. So I run my ASIC in the winter in my basement to keep it warm, um, and I get a little bit of cash back. So I get no cash back rewards from my space heater I bought from Ace Hardware. It just burns up watts, gives out heat, and that's it. But with my ASIC, it burns up watts, gives out heat, and I actually accumulate some Bitcoin. So it's sort of like a uh, space heater with cash back rewards. So that's another thing to consider if you're in a cold climate with uh, some of this mining equipment. And conversely, if you're in a hot climate, then you have to pay to cool them, and that's another input you need to consider. So, you know, thinking about all this, so if this all fits your risk tolerance, you know, then go for it. Otherwise, just keep keep that 2500 and look to buy possibly the mother of all dips coming up if we have a coin split. You know, this is another big thing to consider at this point. Do you want to have 2500 tied up in hardware, netting you a little over $11 a day, or have some ammo ready in the in you know to buy in low if the opportunity presents itself in the next month or so. So as for me, I just focus most of my spare time on day trading cryptocurrency, so buying and selling has been easier for me to fit into my schedule. But I know people that like to jump on the newest and hottest coins with their ASICs and uh, mostly GPUs, and then mine them to grab large amounts and wait until they go up where they can make a profit. Each to their own. Just do your research and math and know your risks and take a shot. Thanks for, all the, thanks for the question, Bill, and I hope this helps. One final thing I'd like to mention on a side note. I would like to, I would like to say that I have a new page over at CryptoSkim.com where I'll be putting supporting information pertaining to these, these listener responses. Just go over to CryptoSkim.com and click on the tab TSP Questions. Then scroll down and find the episode number and brief description of the question. Uh, yeah, so you should be able to find this information for this question. I got some links in there of where I got my numbers. Once again, this is Brandon from CryptoSkim.com wishing you all a great day. Well, that's an expert we have because I don't know. <laughs> I, I have played around a little bit with some pool mining and stuff like that, and it hasn't really worked out to where I think it's been worth it. Obviously, mining can be profitable or no one would do it. Um, but that's that's a bit over my uh, my level of expertise. And I think the good thing about this is I think we need to understand that we all have things that we're interested in, things that we're going to use as far as developing profitability for ourselves or enhancing our life, and no one's going to do everything. I'm probably not going to start building uh, cryptocurrency miners. Uh, I find it easier to invest here and there in, in the right stuff at the right time. Um, but, man, I'm glad somebody does it because most of the stuff wouldn't work without miners. Next up, I have a question for the Bee Whisperer, Michael Jordan, on dealing with a hive after it's swarmed or split and is now uh, producing almost exclusively uh, drone brood. Michael, take it away. Hey, this is Michael Jordan, the Bee Whisperer of a bee-friendly company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. I'm taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of mead. My question is, Michael... My beehive swarmed, and I captured a swarm and placed it in a new hive, and it's doing fantastic. The original hive is producing tons of drone brood, and not a lot of worker brood. The swarm happened about five days ago, 
your suggestions of that high. I'm in zip code 16822. Okay, so you have a swarm of bees uh, from your high. Uh, so that's a certain skill set. That's uh, apiary management. And that if you're able to catch your swarms, you're getting natural queening. Super good job. And you did that. You caught the swarm that left your hive. Now, the old hive is now only making drones, and the new swarm is doing fantastic. Remember, the swarm is the old hive's queen. So if she was doing good in that hive, she still may be doing good. Unless she's out of drone sperm and the brood count is low, one reason why she's gone, or the swarm is sick, and they're kind of like moving stuff out of their hive. And in that case, if you did catch a swarm, you should always do an investigation and do a one-week quarantine before entering that swarm, nook, or new hive into an apiary. So... You had what we call a good hive management with swarm catching. So here's here's a system on troubleshooting kind of like your hive and, and and what's happening during a swarm. And swarm management, you know, there's there's some classes about it, there's some books about it. Uh, you know, you have to learn about uh, how to do swarm management for your apiary, how to set up swarm traps around the area to catch feral bees and Bees that uh, are come from different apiaries. You have to learn how to gather swarms. So when people call and have them, you have to learn how to get them because not every one of those is the same. You have to learn the difference between swarm and bee recovery. And with bee recovery, it's different than bee rescue, bee cutout, and inoculation. That's a whole nother thing on a whole nother genre. That has nothing to do with swarms. That has to do with re um, removal. So you have to know the difference. So uh, you have to learn what you're going to put your swarms in and how to cultivate them. And then also how to do, like I said here, a quarantine and how to start doing either holistic methods on treating them and all kinds of stuff. So swarm management is, like I said, just a huge thing right there. And you've, you've got this, this swarm. And now you want to know why it's still doing good, but where it came from is not doing good. So let's start off with some stuff that's going to start helping you. Uh, let's go with weigh your highs, documentation of your highs, and food source. I cannot express enough these three things. Those are some of the major things in your beehive. Uh, you need to weigh your highs. This tells your hive if it is swarm and what it's missing from the hive. Could it be bees? Could it that, well, how much honey? There could be many different things by weighing the honey boxes, the brood boxes. And it also tells you like how much that ball swarm is when you weigh it and the new hive should be and the loss and stuff like that. So, uh, if you, if you get a swarm, get the weight of the hive they've left. And then get a wave out of the hive that you're going to put the swarm in. And then get a wave to the hive after you put the swarm in it. Now you have where the a baseline for the new hive, right, which is basically a new queen. 
that should be laying brood in the old box. And then the new one, you should be able to get a starting weight. And that way you can see progressions of lows and dars and swarming and brooding and stuff like that. So weigh your highs. Now you're left with an old hive and you have to start off with a new hive in the swarm. Now you have to, you should do colony marking. Uh, the hive that was the old one, right? You, you have your beehive. It swarmed. That swarm is what we call the original colony. Because that was your original hive and now the queen with the original hive of bees has now swarmed and left. That is called the original colony. So if you'd put that in a hive, that is your base colony. Uh, you can basically set like lines now of breeding. So you have your base original colony now and you can watch her grow. Now what's really cool is the bees that are left behind are what we call F1. Right? Those are the first line of the first hive. First line, F first line, one, first hive. So if you have labeled hives one through a billion, right, it would be the first line, so it would be an F6. That would be your first first original, or right, it would be like O6 would be original line, hive six. F6 would be the first line, right, the first queen that is now in that hive after a swarm, that the original one is now gone, that's the first line in hive one. So you, you need to start marking these things. So your original swarm has left. That's O1, first hive original. The swarm that's in there now, you should mark that hive F1. That is the first line uh, of the first hive. Now, if you were going to do another one, for example, you have F2s. That's first line, second hives. And you might even get second swarms out of those hives. So that would be an S2, meaning second swarm from hive number two, S2. And what you're going to be able to see, this means you're going to have original hives. You're going to have first and second generations. And you're going to be able to see like kind of what you like out of those. And you can force those to make queens, requeening some of your hives with generations that you feel are better generations from breeding that you're going to have certain lines from queens breeding with drones that some years you got some really good breeding, some good feral drones that got in there, and maybe some of your own drones that you're doing. And you might want to just take that that, that line that's in that, that queen that's laying and populate and make another queen for another second generation S2. So you can catch those swarms and base those lines for now genetic documentation. So documentation is important. So... Let's get back to this one that's doing great. Remember, it's the original colony of the hive, and it's a and it's good and swarmed. It should be strong building uh, a force because majority of the bees left with the queen. So as long as it's a good laying queen, you're doing great. Now the hive that we're going to call F1, first generation requeening, right? Natural requeening in hive one, F1 hive, or what we call the next generation, a good queen making. Uh, and breeding has happened. You have a new line going in 12 to 20 days. In that time period, you will start seeing a hatched queen, and you should start seeing larvae and egg laying. And that's what everybody should see. Be swarmed in 12 to 20 days, 
I should start seeing a queen that has hatched, right? A queen cell that's hatched and possibly maybe some eggs being laid. Now, you're telling me you've looked in there and now there's only drones. That there is no eggs in there. And the ones that are eggs, the larva is turning into drones. Right? That you're not getting any worker bees. So what does that mean? Well, number one, what does the comb in the hive look like? Is it too big? Is it, and is she making only drones? That if the comb is too big, it does not squeeze the side of the queen, making her secrete the sperm that will mix with her eggs to make worker bees. If it does not squeeze her, she'll just make drones. That's why you have bigger cells making drones, because it doesn't squeeze her for the mix of sperm. So if you've only got drone cells in there, you only get drone bees. So you might have to just check the comb size. Simple, simple switch out, man. Two, uh, you might have had a new queen and died. And we have what we call a worker that took over the role as a queen because of panic. Uh, usually this happens with, uh, you know, after a couple weeks of no queen. And what happens is they panic and they start doing something to try to keep the colony going. If a new queen was not made after swarming or died during a mating flight or, you know, in the hive, you know, because accidents happen, man, you know. You might have been doing that last check and might have killed her or, you know, Things do. She might have left, never came back. Said, "No, this I'm cool. This save my life." And or you know, one other thing, she might have got eaten on a mating flight, never made it back, and that that happens. That happens quite a bit, actually. I don't think people realize that the mating flight is a miraculous thing all by itself, and they do get lost. So you might have lost it. Now there are eggs, and if they are younger than four days old, they will try to make another queen. But let's say if it's over four days old, uh, that means they can only make the last round of working bees with those, and they have no new eggs to make queens. So maybe a working girl just started laying. And most of the time, uh, the drones that come out of that batch are less than 5.5. They're around 4.9 to 4. or I mean 5.2. Millimeter bees. So that means the drones are going to be small. Because what happens is when you have a small bee laying uh, with no sperm and they're only drones, she's going to only lay in any anything she can. So you might see smaller drones. If you see that in a lot of drones, it's probably because you have this uh, worker girl that, that wants to take over the role as a queen. So your drones may be smaller, uh, and that, that's, what, that's what that means, is that you, you don't have a queen, and you didn't have eggs for them to make uh, a queen. Number three, so you have good cells, right? They're, they're the correct cells. you got drone cells and correct cells, and you're queen, and you see her. So it's not a working laying girl, and you see her queen, and you actually see her dipping in the, in the cells and laying in worker cells, but you still only see drones, uh, she's probably sterile, and you're probably not getting a workforce, right? And number four, all is great. I see no problems. Everything's great. I see her doing everything, dipping, laying, and everything. And what is happening is I'm still not getting uh, any type of girls or anything to get started. 
but I'm not seeing any pollen in the hive. That's why, food source. You don't have anything that they can start off with royal jelly to start everybody off with, and anything to start feeding bee bread. Bee bread is extremely necessary to feed everybody and to get everything going without it, so it's maybe food source. So three things you checked. You should check to see kind of like how you're starting and get your documentation with your weight on this new situation that you're in, right, on, on this hive that's laying drones. Best scenario, any problem you have with a queen is immediately requeen. And the information that I've all just fed you is now that you can kind of see how to fix and isolate your problem. That way you don't have this reoccurrence. You can either tell right now I need to either put different cells in, or you already know to requeen, or you need just, uh, more food. So, I mean, it's if you're needing to resell, it's documentation because you're not folding out your frames as much. To put new ones in, if it's uh, the aspect of requeening, right? You, you go through your documentation as well as finding what kind of queens you want to introduce into those. And if it's food source, right? You need to start feeding and getting some pollen patties in there and get things going. And you might be able to requeen right away. Hey, I'm Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company. Man, and I just want you guys to remember that uh, some of the questions are fantastic, and it takes a little bit of research to look on. But no question is a dumb question. And I'm only here to help. Hopefully I helped you out today. I didn't get a name, but I would just basically always requeen and check my food source if I'm not, if I don't know. And you'll do, you'll do good. Alright. Remember to always buy honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a cottage industry or a small business because we all just had to start someplace. Help out somebody. And when I'm talking about helping out somebody, reach out, help your fellow man, help society. I mean, I took a raft trip this weekend. I picked up trash in the state park. A guy, Benton McKibben, was with me. It was kind of funny because there I'm cussing about all the people driving by and the bags blowing by, and I'm out in the middle of it picking up trash, yelling at them. It, it, it takes nothing, right? I'm waiting to get in the state park anyway. Got to pay to go play, I guess. Help your fellow man. Hey, Bee Whisper, out. All right, so great stuff from Michael. Guy knows so much about bees. We're, we're so lucky to have him to help us with things like that. And that's a type of issue that I think you wouldn't know how to deal with until you actually had to deal with it. Um, and it's not something I've, I've seen happen yet. And uh, you know, if it ever does now, I know how to handle it. So my next question comes from Paul in Kansas. Paul says, is there truth behind children that are homeschooled? When they get older, they're socially backwards. Background, I've been trying to convince my wife that homeschooling would be the way to go for our children. We have four boys, 12, 5, 19, uh, who are twins, so 19-month-old twins, and the problem is that too many people have told her that homeschooled children are socially backward. Are there any resources you can point me to that might help me change my wife's mind? I don't like government schools and would rather have my boys homeschooled. Thanks, Paul from Kansas. Okay, I, I, I know exactly how to convince your wife, airtight, that this is a myth and it's a lie. And I'll talk about that in a second. And I might even go on a little bit of a jack rant about why this myth persists and how stupid I think the people are that perpetuate it. Not your wife, but the people that keep keep recycling this myth. Okay, But let's start out with what the real issue is. If your wife would like to homeschool, but just thinks this is a problem that can't be overcome, then what I'll tell you in the second half of this response is valuable to you. If your wife just doesn't want to homeschool, then it won't matter. She'll find another excuse. 
And before you go down this road, you need to figure out which one it is. Because if she just doesn't want to do it, then you have a totally different issue to address. Okay, and here's what I mean. And women are notorious for this. I remember being a young man, you know, you meet a girl, talk to her a couple times, maybe you live near her or something like that, and then finally you're like, you know, I'd like to go out with her. So you say, hey, you know, would you like to go out Friday night? And they say, well, I have plans. Not I'd love to, I have plans. I have plans. And you have to quickly switch on to the fact that that does not mean, well, what about next week? Well, I'm not sure yet. Right? Like you have, to, you have to figure out what that means is, my plans Friday is to not go out with you. Because if there's any hope of ever getting that girl to go out with you, saying, oh, so you don't want to go out. Right? And then she'll be like, well, uh. And then she'll try to soften it again to like protect your feelings. Women are great about that unless they're being bitches for the intent of being a bitch. They, they really den generally try to pe you know, let people down easy or whatever. And you, no, let's, it's okay. I, like, I'm not sitting here you know, waiting for you to decide you want to go out to, with me. Um, you're not interested, that's fine. I'm okay with that. You actually start to become attractive when you do that. Trust me, I know. All right. So anyway, all people do this, but specifically women, they don't like conflict, so they try to defer the conflict using an excuse. I have to wash my hair that night, right? Well, the children are socially awkward. I'm not saying that's going on here, but it could be, and I can tell you why, and it might be a damn good reason. So who's going to do it? Paul, are you? Do you work from home? Are you a full-time you know, employee at home? Do you have your own business at home? Are you going to do this, or is she going to do this? And what does she do right now? Would this mean she has to stop working or stop pursuing something she loves to do it? Because then you have a whole different issue, don't you? Um, you know, Is she basically a, a homemaker right now and stays home with the youngest kids, but she's trying to take care of two 19-month-old children, and you want to flit off to work every day while she homeschools the kids? Now, it's totally doable, but only if she really wants it to happen. Because what I would be hearing if I were her, if I didn't examine this at a deeper level and determine what the benefits are to our children and to myself is, oh, you want me to be stuck at home for, what, the next 15, 16 years taking care of our children when they could go off to that nice government school-provided daycare service. And she might be thinking right now, you know, 19 months, just... Just like three more years, they'll be in kindergarten, and mom will actually be able to breathe for a few hours a day without looking after all these kids, two of them who are probably still not potty trained. So just she might not be in the mental place to have the discussion of, you're going to take care of all four of these boys 24-7 for the next, you know, I guess for the one, you're looking at like five years, but some of them, the, 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 it'll be 15 years before, or 16 years before the 19 months olds are done. And she would have no concept of like how much children are actually on their own in this and stuff like that, etc. Okay, so you have to figure that out first. Now, assuming that it really just is, I just think our children won't be socially well adjusted. Okay, first of all, they have four brothers, so there's children together, they're at different ages, so they have interaction there. I'm sure they have neighbors and friends, so kids interact with each other. But here's the airtight way: there is no website, there is no video. There's no nothing that will convince a person that believes the bullshit lie that children are become socially backward adults if they're homeschooled. No matter what they read, they'll just say, well, that's, that's what the opinion of the people that are for it, right? All you have to do is find some homeschooling parents in your neighborhood or your area and ask them if you can come on one of their trips or one of their day outings or one of their 
functions or something like that because you're considering homeschooling and you're not sure how that aspect of it will work. And when it comes to evangelizing what they do, homeschoolers are at the top of the list. They love that. That's that's like that makes I guarantee you, a homeschooler that's a part of like a group control or something like that and, and it gets to have a conversation with a father or a mother that says, We're thinking about homeschooling, but we're concerned about you know socialization and things like that. And instead of just asking you about it, we'd actually like to see what you do. You made their day. You made their day. And if they say, Well, we don't really do anything, we just, then you're talking to the wrong people. Right? Find somebody else. And then go meet children that are homeschooled. Go meet them. And talk to them. Because what I've learned in meeting children that are homeschooled is in general, I can tell a homeschooled child that fast. And especially, like, when they're like seven, eight, nine, you might know, but you might not know, because kids that way are very homogenous. They just, they haven't really started to, you know, form. I don't know how to put this because they definitely have individual personalities. But they're not that – it's not as easy to see the difference yet because they haven't developed socially enough for you to see how they're developing socially unless you're sitting there analyzing like a psychologist or something like that. When you talk to kids that are 12, 13, 14 years old that are homeschooled, they talk to you like they're 25. In fact, they talk to you a lot of times with a lot more intelligence and directness and – kind of responsiveness and articulation than a lot of 25-year-olds do. And it's because they're on a self-directed learning path, because they're responsible for their own learning to a high degree. And the whole socially backward thing, uh, and socially awkward, right? Socially backwards. What makes a person socially awkward? Why are people socially awkward? You know, why do people like not look at other people in the eye and don't get into group conversations and keep their mouth shut and kind of just don't fit in? Why are they that way? What is, what is the reason for it? Now, some people are just naturally introverted, and I don't care if you're homeschooled, military schooled, public school, private school, Montessori, I don't care what it is. If you are naturally introverted, some level you're going to be introverted. But why are people really socially awkward? Because they're afraid. They're afraid when they speak, somebody's going to put them down, somebody's going to pick on them. Or they're overly aggressive because they always had to be, because they had to be the one that got to the top of the pecking order, at least maintain their place when everybody was getting put down and picked up. So where does that shit happen? Where does that shit happen more than any other place in America today? Where is the number one place where when a young person speaks up, someone says you're stupid, or someone mocks them, or someone picks on them? Say it! Huh? Sam Caniston right now. Say it! Say it! Ah! Say it! School. Public school. And it's not just students either. Gym teachers, teachers. I've seen teachers pick on kids. I remember being a kid and have teachers pick on me. I was the kind of kid that would pick back. I was the kind of kid that would, would like, like bait them into it because I liked it because I'm screwed up in the head that way, okay? But I, I remember kids being picked on. By teachers, not just other kids. All little cliques, all little groups. Yeah. What socialization can you get in school that you won't get in something that parents actually have oversight and control of that's desirable? Let's see, your 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 son at fifteen won't be having unprotected sex in the bathroom with his girlfriend. It's not gonna happen, is it? I'm not saying it will if he goes to government school, but it can and it does. It does. He probably won't be, you know, exchanging money for drugs in the hallway. 
You know? He probably won't be bullied by someone he can't get away from. He probably won't be bullying someone that can't get away from him. I mean, what exact socialization happens in public school that can't happen outside of public school that is desirable? But again, just take her to meet children and adults who are now in their careers who are homeschooled. I'm telling you, I'm almost getting to where I can see it in adults now. There is a certain, and it's a very desirable thing. It's not socially backwards. It's socially comfortable. They're comfortable talking to anybody. They're comfortable talking to anybody. Because they're never attacked ruthlessly without an ability to either defend themselves or to de-escalate the, 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 the attack by simply withdrawing themselves. What do you think happens if you have a bunch of kids getting together for, let's say, a soccer league, that's part of a homeschool group, and one kid's being a bully. Out! Out! But, but, out! Out! You're gone! Done! There's no discussion about this. There's no, well, he has a right to an education. You're done. Bye-bye. If you're causing a problem, you're out. And hence, there's very few problems. I mean, honestly, this pisses me off, and it's not your wife, Paul, and it's not you. It's just bullshit myth. Like, this is the most... This is the, the largest steaming pile of bullshit that I've ever heard because it's so easy, easily disproven. Again, go meet people doing it, talk to their kids, and then tell me they're socially backwards. You know, I, I had a family that stayed here a couple times. The lady homeschools her kids. And the kids all have their own individual personalities. They're all different, but they, they, they have something that kids that come out of the school system don't seem to have, especially at their younger ages. So you're watching a 12-year-old kid play a guitar like he's a classically trained guitarist. You going to get that from school? You can get socially backward? In case you ain't paid attention, guys that play guitar generally do pretty well with the ladies. I'm just saying. You know? You can't make a career out of that. How do you know? Maybe you can Don't, I don't think this kid plans to. But it's one of the things. You learn music, you learn mathematics. Music is math. There's no freedom like that in public school. And when you don't have freedom and you're held into a, a, a rigid criterion that doesn't fit you, that creates socially awkwardness. I've met some of the most socially backward, socially awkward people you can imagine. And they went to government school. It didn't make them not socially awkward. I'm not saying you can homeschool your kid and they won't be socially awkward. I don't know how your kid's going to turn out. I don't know who your child is. I don't know who their internal personality is. I will tell you this. If, if, if somebody is naturally socially awkward, public school will make it worse, and homeschooling done correctly will mitigate it. But again, don't believe me. Don't point her to a video. Don't show her an infographic. Go talk to kids and adults that were homeschooled. And you'll see, you'll see for yourself. And then there's no debate about it. But I'm, I'm sensing this is not about that. I'm sensing this is I have to wash my hair on Friday. And you need to have a very gentle, very careful conversation with your wife, Paul, and find out if that's the issue. Because then you can say, okay, now if that's the issue... Can we get around that? Can we learn more about it? Can we determine whether or not this is right? With a full understanding of, if, honey, if you don't want to do this, because you don't, you don't feel like you want to do this, then we can't do it. And I understand that.
but will you learn more with me about it to make sure that it's, it doesn't turn out to be what you think it is? You know, like if it's exactly what you think it is and you don't want to do it, then let's not do it. But if you learn about it and it seems like something we could try, and then another thing I think would be very important, this is for any situation where one parent wants to homeschool and the other one doesn't, this is not like joining the army. If it, you could do it for a year, see how it works, they can go right back to the government schools, they'll be happy to have them. They'll be happy to have them. And I've even known families that some kids actually do better in government school, and some kids do better in homeschool. And I knew one family that had four kids, and two were homeschooled, and two went to government school. Because it worked better for them. There's, and I've known plenty of parents, kids did some of their schooling in homeschool, and did some of their schooling in government school, and it worked well for them. You have that flexibility. It's not joining in the Army. So that's another important thing to convey. But I, I'm smelling a I have to wash my hair Friday night objection. I, I really, really am here. And I'm not, it's not, you women think I'm being sexist out there right now, or even guys, right? I'm not. It's just, I know how I feel. Like, I remember when I was working from home, and my wife was a nurse, and I didn't know anything about homeschooling. She said, if she would have told me that, I want, I want to homeschool Matthew. And back then, we couldn't afford to, like, have her quit her job. I didn't make that much money. And I would have been like, well, you, you can't quit your job. She, she said, no, but you'll take care. You, you'll do it. I would have thought, how am I going to do my job? Even though I was home all the time, how am I going to do my job? Now I understand, actually, I could have done it. Between the two of us, we could have worked it out, especially, you know, utilizing camp grandmas and stuff like that back then. We could have worked that, we could have made that work. But I didn't understand it then, and I certainly would have been likely to say, no, I don't want to do it. But a lot of people say, saying, no, I don't want to do it, or no, I don't think I can do it, will say, Oh, let me use the catch-all objection, but they're not socially well-adjusted, which is complete bullshit. It's No, there's no truth in it to answer the very succinct question you asked, Paul. With that, let's go ahead and uh, remind you guys about um, how you can help support this show really, really easily. All you got to do is whenever you're going to shop online, go to tspaz.com first, tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, and you can there you can see all the reviews I do of products on Amazon, and you can get on over to Amazon, see their deals of the day. But whenever you shop online through tspaz.com, you do help the survival podcast and the work that we do here. That brings us to our song of the day. The song of the day today is by a band called Bare Naked Ladies. They're really not Bare Naked Ladies. That's just the name of the band. Most of you have probably heard a song by them over and over and over again and may not have even known that's who it was. Because they sing the theme song, the theme song on Big Bang Theory. It all started with the Big Bang. That song, right? That's the Bare Naked Ladies. Um, this song is again not that song. It's called Pinch Me, and it's it's actually a, a really cool song. the The entire concept of this song is people whose life isn't going real bad, but they realize it could be better. The video for the song is guy, this guy working as like a fast food worker, and he's dreaming of this incredible future dancing around with all the customers. Right? So, you know, most of us that have been teenagers and had menial jobs like that have in that job sat around while we're doing it and thought about one day, man, I'm going to be something. I'm going to be better. But kind of what this song speaks to with me is getting to the point where you're actually what others see as a success. And the reason you don't get $15 an hour to flip a Whopper is because people don't see that as a success. Okay? Just going to say that there. Um, 
the, the band actually is from Canada, and they were really successful by the time they released the album that had this song on it. And what precipitated it was they never really knew it. They weren't doing very well in Canada. Like they were, you know, hitting, you know, big hits around the world, especially in the United States and all. In Canada, they were doing like shit. And so it kind of got that thought process going. This is all from Song Facts. I read about this today. I'm getting ready to do this segment. But here's where it makes me wonder, right? Is there a gift that comes with getting to that certain point in life where you have the basic things you need and maybe a little bit more and you can take a vacation and you are saving for your retirement so you know it's going to be okay and being willing to be content and stop and not worry about, hey, I could be doing better. And, and the reason I say that is I'm the opposite. And I know many of you are too. Always looking to do something more. Always looking to make a bigger impact. Always looking to add something to what I do. And I think that those of us that feel that way, we're very blessed. Because we end up with owning a business or being very, very successful at the top of our field or something like that. But you look at people who have you know, a decent job or a small business that they run like a job, and they're done at 5 o'clock on Friday every freaking week, and when they go on vacation, they're on vacation, unless somebody dies, don't bother me, right? Um, they don't worry about anything. They go to work, they come home, they take the kids to school, they pick the kids up at the bus stop. You know, they're the work-a-day, everyday Americans. And there's millions and millions, the majority, that's who they are. But I think out of that majority of people that are there, most of them think, hey, I could have more. I could do more. I could have, I could strive for more. But there's a group of them, they just, okay, it's good. I'm good now. If I get promoted, I get promoted. Hopefully it won't be into something I don't like. Go to work, do my job, come home, love my kids, hug my wife. Work is done at 4.30, 5 o'clock, whatever time. It's off. It's gone. There may be a blessing in that. But I'll tell you a secret. Even if there is, personally, I wouldn't trade places with one of those people. I wouldn't trade places with one of those people. In fact, I would tell you that the secret of my success is at some point I realized I would never get to that level and I became okay with it. See, when I was a young person, I did dream of getting like the good job in the corner office and shit like that. Um, I thought, well, when I get there, I'll have made it. I'll be like these adults that I see around me that have a nice car and a nice house. And then I became, I was very successful, made a lot of money, had a nice car, had a nice house, had a company car, I had a travel budget, I had a meals budget. Uh, and I went, this is it? You know, I started thinking, so the guy that has the other region that does this job has been doing this job for 18 years. And frankly, he doesn't make that much more money than me. He makes a little bit more money in his base salary because he gets a raise his base salary every year and stuff like that. But in the end, because I, I sell more stuff, I make almost as much money as a guy that's been doing this job for 18 years. After doing this job for two years, I can do it in my sleep. I don't really have anything else to learn. But hey, I get to travel around. I have a credit card. I buy three, $400 meals a night. And no one yells at me for it. Just turn a piece of paper in. You know? I have a car that's paid for. I have a pension that they're putting money into. I got a 401k that I'm putting money into. People are excited when they see me. 
I'm important, you know. One day I thought, I don't want to do this anymore. The future is the Internet and marketing. I made a career change. I went from making a good six-figure salary to making $40,000 a year. Two and a half years later, I worked myself to a point where I had established a partnership with Neil Franklin. We established a marketing company. I was the chief marketing officer of his uh, wireless optimization company and the chief operating officer of his um, headhunting company. Making great money again, better than ever. And I start this show. I start this show with a $20 recorder, and a $30 recorder and a $20 headset. And I realized this is what I want to do. And I'll tell you what, this is the first time, this this is what I'm doing now, the first time when I said, I could do this for the rest of my life, but I still want to do more. I still want to do more. And I realized I can't be one of those people that's just content. That's what this song's about. Doing well, but knowing you could do more. And at what point do we make peace with either the fact that we're going to stay where we are, and basically flatline it to the end or make peace with the fact that we can't do that and that we're always going to have the entrepreneur mind, the aggression, the desire to do more, the desire to impact more lives and embrace it. I think either decision is okay. But I think we are hardwired in our DNA to be one or the other and what's not okay is to be in denial of it or to fight it. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. It's the perfect time of year. Somewhere far away from here. I feel fine enough, I guess. Considering everything's a mess. There's a restaurant down the street Where hungry people like to eat I could walk but I'll just drive It's colder than it looks outside It's like the dream you try to remember but it's gone Then you try to scream but it only comes out as young When you try to see the one beyond your front door Take your time to wait how long to make you smile When you realize that the guy might take a while Just to try to figure out what all this is for It's the perfect time of day To throw all your cares away Put the sprinkler on the lawn And run through with my gym shorts on Take a drink right from the hose And change into some drier clothes Climb the stairs up to my room Sleep away the afternoon It's like a dream you try to remember but it's gone Then you're trying to scream but it only comes out as a yawn When you're trying to see the world beyond your front door Take your time to wait how long to make you smile When you realize that a guy might take a while Just to try to figure out what all this is for Pinch me, pinch me, 
such as this It's hard to tell if I exist Pack the car and leave this town Who'll notice that I'm not around I could hide out under there I just made you say underwear I could leave but I'll just stay All my stuff's here anyway Like the TV trying to remember but it's gone Then you try to scream but it'll make a better the arm When you try to see slowly on your front door Take your time to wait how long you think you 